Well, it's great to be here and um, lovely to have some proper London in-house. Um, this, is, this is the nicest conference I've ever been to, and I've been to lots of conferences. I was just saying to Wayne, what a result to be here with my family. I want to say thank you to you all for um, welcoming us so warmly. It's, it's a real privilege and a pleasure, and it's a particular privilege and a pleasure for me to talk to, to youth workers, because you're where it's at. And um, I want to say on behalf of the church that I represent, thank you. Thank you for everything that you do. Thank you for the way you serve, the way you give, the way you role model, the way you love Jesus, and the way you love our young people. And I know you don't hear that message enough, but I want to say thank you for what you're doing. And hopefully through this session, we'll be able to equip you a little bit more about the things in the emotions that I'm particularly equipped to do. And I just encourage you just to have a, an open, prayerful heart. Don't believe everything I say for yourself. Hopefully everything I say is given to you truthfully and with integrity, but you've got to weigh it, you've got to measure it, you've got to seek the Lord for it, you've got to ask the Lord if that's for you, and then you've got to work through it. It's not like a one-stop shop where you can have an emotionally healthy MOT and come out the other side with a certification. You've just got to be open to what God is saying, and you've got to weigh it, measure it, and journey with it for a little while. So let's, um, let's pray together as we begin this session. Just an encouragement to you. I'm going to do a Q&A for the second half of this session, and um, I'd love you to be thinking about questions you might have around emotional mental health in young people. If you feel uncomfortable about asking your question, you can just tweet me at Will Vanderhart or at Minosol UK, and I will pick those up on my phone, and then I'll be able to give them anonymously. So if you want to give anonymous questions, then I can receive them as we go. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you are here in the room by your Holy Spirit. You love us. You're present with us, and you are the most emotionally whole person ever to walk on this earth. And we just know that you long for a church which is emotionally healthy, for a leadership that's emotionally healthy, and for young people in turmoil, Lord. We want to be a model of what it is to be emotionally healthy to them. But also, Lord, we want our emotional health and our spiritual health to be co-joined. We want to be Christian people who love you with our whole hearts, and we want to live our hearts out there, open, vulnerable, and clean and clear in Jesus' name. Amen. When I first took over um, my first church as a church leader, it was, this, um, it was in Harrow in northwest London. And it, it was one of those churches that had a lovely vicar, but he'd sort of been doing great ministry, but he was one of those people who doesn't see detail for the building itself. And I'm sure there's lots of us here like that. They don't care about buildings, they care about young people, care about Jesus, not interested in that. I, I'm one of those people who are like, you know, I'm, I'm quite a sort of put the magazine straight kind of a person. So I arrived at this church went in, and there was like 20 years of, of junk everywhere. Um, on all the windowsills, there were like you know, plastic flowers that had been left there since like 1973. And that, it looked like they had marshmallows sitting on the top. There was so much dust, and you know, it was like this, little clouds floating on everything. So I arrived, and I couldn't help myself but kind of get bin bags out. Every day, and I'd sort of swipe things off shelves or rip things down off old notice boards. And they called me the whirlwind because I kind of came in and like kind of Mr. Muscle went round the place, whizzing things out of the way. And after, you know, I, I took the church around a blue sky thinking weekend, a bit like this, but just a small group of us, just to seek the Lord for what he wanted. What did he want for our church? And I was just really thinking big spiritual claims, but the top of every one of the groups that I sent away to have a little, you know, time for buzz, came back at the top and said, new toilets. It was like the Lord is most interested in the domestic things of our lives. So the first project I did in my church was to put in new toilets. If you're an Anglican like me, you'll know what the smell is, Anglican damp. They don't do it, Glade doesn't do it. You can't, you know, you can't 
frisher it like that, but if you go into an Anglican church, there's this hallmark smell of damp, and it's like the same in every Anglican church around the world. And my church particularly had this incredible smell of Anglican damp. And despite doing the toilets, and despite clearing away every piece of junk in the building, even after sort of nine months of being there, it still stank of Anglican damp. And one day, I was walking around the building. It's a big building. It also had a medical practice in the building. Walking around the building, and I saw this small door, a bit like Alice in Wonderland, this little blue door in the back of the church. So I went to see the maintenance man. I said, I want to go in there. He said, oh, no, mate, you don't want to go in there. And I was like, no, 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 I've just become the vicar of the church. I want to go in there, like open the door. And he said, oh, mate, it's going to take, oh, you know, oh, take me a while, you know, sucking his teeth. Oh, mate, I'm not sure he could go in there. I was like, look, I'm going to go in that door today. I'm either going to break it down or you're going to open it for me. So he says, all right, then. So he, he goes and gets a key from this massive key locker, like thousands of keys. We don't know what doors they open. Opens this lock. And like Indiana Jones, I pull out my iPhone, you know, with the torch on, and I got a stick, and I was sort of fighting my way through the cobwebs and trying to look out for the arachnids. And I got about three steps down, and then I, like, I suddenly realized what the problem was. Lapping at my feet was just brown, putrid water. And I said, I said to him, how deep does this thing go? He goes, oh, I think you can stand up in there. I'm like, no, no, you, just, you cannot stand up in here. So I climbed back out, called the fire brigade, and I said, hello, I'm the new vicar. Our, our church is flooded. I didn't say it probably flooded in 1902. I just said, <laughs> I just said the church is flooded. That was enough to get them round with their uh, big fire engine, and they stuck great big hoses down into this, into this basement and began pumping out. It took them seven hours to pump out the basement. Turns out there are two massive rooms in there. The ceiling's as high as this. It's just filled with water, and it's filled with the scout equipment, right from the old days, from like back in the day, with short shorts and the little thing, and old canvas, and all rotted, and all of their old tin cans, all, everything was rotted. And so I went down into this place, this amazing void underneath the church, and you know, it was, it was like going back in, in time, it was like going into the Titanic or something. It was remarkable, and it took us a couple of weeks to clear out all of this old rotten junk, and then we put in a new pump to pump away the water from some stream that was like running near the church. And then we put in electricity. And then this chap said to me, oh, I love doing weights, but we've got in a small flat. My wife doesn't like them being in the house. He said, do you know anywhere I could work out? I was like, yes, mate. Come on. So I put a couple of heaters in. And every morning, this guy was down there benching huge weights. The thing was, no matter how I cleaned the church, no matter how I polished the sills, no matter how many toilet projects I did, no matter how much air glade I sprayed around the place, no matter what I did to get away from this smell, the reality was, if I had a flooded basement, there ain't nothing going to shift that smell. Nothing's going to clean that out. And it's the same with our lives. If we have a shame basement that is filled to bursting, it doesn't matter how great your ministry is, doesn't matter how sparkling your personality is. doesn't matter how incredible people think you are. Unless you pump out that shame basement, then your ministry is always going to be on the wobbly edge. You're always going to be running and hiding from that nasty little smell. If people really knew what you were like, they wouldn't want to listen to you. If people really saw what was in your back room, they ain't going to follow you. You've got to be careful. As soon as people find out what you're like, then you're going to be out of a job. So many leaders in my experience, are living their life with a massive shame basement. And everything looks bright and shiny on the upstairs, but on the downstairs, there's a big lock on that door that says, don't you come in here. 
And the reality is, unless we pump out that shame basement and get emotionally healthy and put a strong man in there pumping iron for the Lord, full of integrity and grace, then our ministry is always going to be weak. And I've seen a lot of people run a shame basement with incredible ministry results for a number of years. They're like, everyone's like, oh, wow, this guy or this girl, they're incredible. Then you read about them in the Christian press, and everyone goes, wow, how did that happen? Well, I tell you, it didn't happen because they started eyeing up the worship leader or whatever it was that happened to them. It happened because a long time ago when they started ministry, they didn't deal with the junk that was in their trunk. They didn't say, actually, in order to do this work, I need to be a person who's one person at peace with myself. I need to have God right at the heart of everything I do. I need to deal with the reality of shame as it impacts me because shame makes me want to run and hide from the things of God. It makes me want to place myself into exile and to demonstrate something else. The trouble with shame is it's um, a silent emotional experience. This is Simon Rattle who's leading the uh, London Philharmonic Orchestra. I think it's, it's a bit like, um, if you know Monk the Scream, it's a bit similar to that. He probably won't thank me for that analogy, but... He's one of the greatest conductors in, in the world today. And he's conducting an orchestra. Now, the thing about shame is, shame doesn't have a voice of itself. It's just like the conductor. Shame, you, cannot, you can say, I feel guilty, or I feel worried, or you know, I feel disappointed, or I feel depressed. But you cannot say, I'm shaming, or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, sh- I'm shamey a bit. I'm, I'm, I'm shame, shame. Sham. I don't know how to say it. I don't know. It's not, is it a doing word? Is it a verb or is it a noun? I'm not really clear. But what I know is it's driving an awful lot of the things that are going on in my inner world in leadership. You see, the shame conductor hasn't got a voice of its own. But what it does is it distorts every other emotion in your emotional orchestra. Whatever Simon does in front of the Royal Philharmonic can make their sound melodic or unharmonious. It can twist the different parts of the orchestra. Instruments that sound sweet can sound sour. And if your shame basement is full, all of your emotions become distorted by this silent yet ultimately powerful force. A psychologist called Sylvan Tompkins uh, proposed an idea, what we call the primacy of effect, to acknowledge that shame conducts. It's a primary emotion. It's not even emotion, it's called an affect. It is a primary affect that conducts the other emotions in your inner world. That's why, weirdly, for some of you, when you're having an absolutely brilliant time and you're thinking things can get better than this, pow, you get this kick in the guts that says, oh, yeah, but you don't really deserve this. When things are really happening in ministry, you're thinking, oh, you know, oh, I suddenly feel really uncomfortable. I'm not quite sure why. Shame can turn the feeling of joy into the feeling of anguish. It can feel, uh, turn the feeling of anger into the feeling of fear. It can weirdly affect all of your emotions in a negative way. Yet so few people actually uh, engage with emotion, the emotion of shame directly. The University of Glasgow convincingly argues that there are actually only four basic emotions, and they're happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. Now, if you missed that bit, there are actually six, but the University of Glasgow says there are only four. That's why I said the two things in couplets very quickly, in case you, so you can sort of merge them into two. So let's try that again. There are four basic emotions, happy, fear, surprise, anger, disgust, and sadness. Now, 
The thing about shame is it takes those four emotions and they're like the four parts of an orchestra. You know, you've got the woodwind and the percussion and the strings and the brass. And those things are all being impacted by shame in your life. Now, some of you are sitting there going, yeah, this talk isn't for me. And that's totally fine. Go to sleep, my friend. (laughs) But if this talk is for you, then this could be one of the most important talks in your ministry experience. Because actually, if you, can drain, if you can drain this shame basement, and if you can change your relationship with shame, the whole orchestra of your life will make a new sound. And I, I just hear today that the Lord is doing something new. Behold, can you see it? Do you not perceive it? It riseth up. He's doing a new thing. Now, you are all the mouthpiece of God in the world. You're going to sing a new song for his glory, but how can you sing when the conductor of the orchestra of your heart is this one of shame, this one of separation from the things of God? I'm passionate that you can sing a new song because the song that you're singing is a song of an integrated person loved by God which can transform the world around you. Insecurity is the enemy of faith, but it's also the enemy of life. It's an enemy that's impacting our young people today in a way which I don't think has ever been experienced in our history within the United Kingdom. Young people are more insecure today than they have ever been. And that's, that's not sort of an anecdotal point for me. That's borne out in all of our mental health experience. That young people are, are responding to their insecurity with rising rates of self-harm. Increasing rates for the necessity for medication for common neurotic mental health problems. We are seeing an increasing number of young people taking their own lives. We're seeing an increase in cyberbullying. We're seeing an increase in, in runaways, in discombobulation amongst young people. You know it's true because you're experiencing it. But how can we really help if we aren't truly secure? If we can't show people something strong? Jesus said, I'm the rock. I'm a rock on which you can build the house. And we want to be rocks. We want to be strong. We want to have foundations that are secure. And I just believe that shame is our enemy. Some of you will still be thinking, oh, I love the idea about the orchestra. I don't understand it at all. How does this work out in my life? I don't know if I'm feeling shame or not. I don't know whether shame is really affecting me or not, so I'm not sure if I can really connect. And I would say the single most revelatory experience in your life as far as leadership's concerned is fraudulence. It's this weird feeling that I'm a fraud. You know, people say, they coin the phrase now in a, in a disclosing way. They say, hey, you just got to fake it to make it. Have you heard that? Obviously, my plummy London accent's not really helping you. I could do it in different dialects, but I would get in trouble with the northerners. Um, but, you know, in, whatever, in whichever style you're going to say it, Fake it to make it has become the new okay. But it's funny, isn't it, when people say they've got to fake it to make it? Because secretly what they're saying is, I am faking it. I'm just disclosing that I'm faking it because it makes me feel like I'm faking it less. So it's like, oh, fake it to make it. Oh, actually, secretly what I'm saying is, I don't really deserve to be here. But I feel better because I've said that because now I don't feel like you're judging me and what I'm doing. In fact, you think that I'm struggling and that makes me feel more authentic and then we're all good. And you keep getting schooled out by people saying, youth leaders today, be really authentic. Like tell everyone all of your problems and all of your vulnerabilities and then all will be good. But is it really good? Like it's really good to be authentic, but should we be 
modeling that to young people by saying, hey, don't worry, it's fine, I'm crap too. <laughs> is that, does that happen when you go to the doctor and you sit down and he goes, yeah, love, I've got no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, let's have a look on Wiki. Does that fill you with confidence? When you go to the mechanic and he gets out the Haynes manual and says, oh, Robin Reliant, 1973, let's have a look at this. Oh, I, th I think I've seen something like that before. And when you go to the dentist, you open your mouth and he goes, oh, now, dental nurse, which, which one is that? That looks a bit funny. Shall we pull it out? Look, how's it going for you in terms of confidence? Because I think... Weirdly, in the whole like, authenticity agenda, what we're doing is not really being authentic. We're just downgrading our experience. We're just saying, I've got to make a few excuses for myself because I feel like a fraud. If I'm a young person and I'm 14 and I'm not quite sure what I'm doing with my life and my family's in chaos and my whole world is in chaos, I don't go see a youth worker and they go, oh, don't worry, I'm in a total mess too. Let me be really authentic about it. Why don't we be in a mess together? No! I don't want to be in a mess with you. I'm already in a mess. I want someone to tell me that things can get better. I want someone to show me what life looks like with order and boundaries and security. Let's do something different. Let's just not do the same thing. We're not meant to be psychologizing ourselves against the young people we're ministering to. We're supposed to be a model. The model of what life looks like in Christ that's secure, that has foundations. No, I am a new creation in Christ does not mean I downgrade the new creationism within me for something else, for something less than. Being authentic is about telling the story of where I've come to, but not denying where I've got to. You are all new creations in Christ. And the, the enemy of faith wants to steal that position and breed insecurity within you so you feel like a fraud. You know, guilt is an I did statement, but shame is an I am statement. It's easy to get over guilt. Because you just go to the cross of Jesus and you say, Jesus, I really messed up. This is what I've done. Will you forgive me? And Jesus says, yes, you know what? I forgive you. I went to the cross for that. And I'm going to take that away. The trouble is that shame is so pernicious. It gets under your skin. What do you do? You go to the cross and say, Jesus, I, I know I'm forgiven for all my sins. I just feel really bad about myself. I'm not sure whether, can you, can you do something about that? Like, do you, do you deal in that kind of business? I'm not sure how to get free. I don't know how I deal with this sense of fraudulence. The key thing about these feelings is how intractable they become. And they formulate new I am statements. Leaders who feel shame say things like, I'm defective, I'm damaged, I'm broken, I'm a mistake, I'm flawed, I'm dirty, I'm soiled, I'm ugly, I'm unclean, I'm impure, I'm filthy, I'm disgusting, I'm incompetent, I'm not good enough, I'm inept, I'm ineffectual, I'm useless, I'm unwanted, I'm unloved, I'm unappreciated, I'm uncherished, I'm weak, I'm small, I'm impotent, I'm puny, I'm feeble, I'm bad, I'm awful, I'm dreadful, I'm evil, I'm despicable, I'm pitiful, I'm contemptible, I'm miserable, I'm insignificant, I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm invisible, I'm noticed, I'm empty. That's the story of a leader who's bound by a basement filled with shame. And I want to tell you, friends, I do not want you to lead out your leadership like that. I want you to lead out free. I want you to lead out confident. I want you to lead out secure. You know, when I was in, in leadership um, early on, I, I was invited to this retreat for leaders. And it was a kind of quite an auspicious retreat. It was actually at Windsor Castle. And um, I received an invitation through the post and I remember I opened the invitation and I was like, oh, wow, this looks great. What an honor. And about three seconds after I'd said that, I thought, oh, they must have made a mistake. I literally, I think I, I basked in the glory for about three seconds, 
before I thought, oh, yeah, probably not for me. And I showed it to my wife, and she said, oh, at last, someone's realized you've got something to say. And I said, oh, I was probably on the D list. Maybe everyone else couldn't make it. She said, don't be stupid. Like, you're there because you're supposed to be there. But I couldn't shake off this feeling like, oh, it wasn't for people like me. It was for brighter, shinier, better kind of leaders. You know, leaders without a backstory. Leaders who hadn't made mistakes. So I thought, all right, oh, yeah, of course I'll go, of course I'll go. I turned up two hours early just to go to the gate with this ticket to make sure it was actually genuinely on the list because I didn't want to be humiliated in front of anyone else. So I sort of tentatively went up to the guards like, hello, I think I'm supposed to be at something here. (laughs) Oh, yes, he said it. I said, oh, yes, I've got this invitation. Is it for me? He said, yeah, as long as you're not completely weird. And I sort of skipped into Windsor Castle. You know, I was like walking around, sort of waiting to get turfed out. And then I went to the retreat, you know, and the, the, everyone was like, oh, how, when did you arrive? It was, oh, oh quite, quite early. And spent some time with the Lord, you know, for all starts. <laughs> uh, and then I remember I was in the room with all these leaders who I really admire and respect. And I remember just thinking, oh, goodness, what on earth am I doing here? And I stood right at the back and I just thought, God, I feel like such a fraud. I just want to go and sit down, and I just want to gorge on those pods that the pigs should be eating. I don't want to sit in the dirt and eat what those pigs are eating. That's how I felt. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Just call me one of your hired hands. I felt God saying to me, oh, my son, you are in a real mess. You are in a mess. And you know what happened? I th- Pete Gregg, who's this guy who runs this 24-7 prayer movement, he stands up at the front. He's funny, Pete. He, he, he just, he's an amazing prophetic guy. He says, okay, I know everyone here feels like a total fraud, but just let's get over ourselves, shall we, and worship Jesus. <laughs> I was like, oh my goodness, now I'm hallucinating. <laughs> I, thought, I, just, I thought it was bad when I felt ashamed. Now I just feel like I'm going crazy. <laughs> Thank you. I, I looked around the room, and, and I saw all of these leaders all nodding. Like, yeah, I feel like that too. And I was like, wow, oh my goodness, it's all right. It's okay to come forward and say, this is my struggle. But it's not okay to stay in that place and just go, well, oh, this is my struggle. Jesus has not called me out for that. He's not called me to stay in the shame basement. He's called me out of that fraudulence into a new authenticity, which is not, you know, it's not a weakness. It's not a sort of, oh, I'm such a mess. It's actually, my life has been transformed in Christ. I am a new creation. At the heart of all this is, you know, is Christ. But at the center of that, you know, in psychological terms, is a theory called belongingness. And um, two psychologists called Leary and um, Baumeister in 1995 coined a study around a topic called belongingness, the need to belong. You know, and I've done a lot of psychology in, 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 in my years of work, and I particularly ended up doing a lot of attachment theory, which many of you will have done because you're working with young people. So you'll know all about Piaget and friends and all about forming strong attachments and a lot about why lots of the young people you're working with are struggling in relationship because they have not had healthy attachment models to them in childhood. But the thing about attachment theory I've always found interesting is it seems to start halfway through the story. Like I get, I get attachment, but why attachment? Why is it important that people attach to one another? And I felt that these two psychologists actually had found what I'd been looking for all along. And it was this. It was that 
to quote, there is a need to belong that is a fundamental human motivation. That human beings have a pervasive drive to form and maintain a minimum quality of lasting, positive, and significant interpersonal relationships. This is the heart of what we do. We're created for connection. We're created to belong. Now, as a Christian, that makes perfect sense to me. Because God has created us for relationship. He's created us to belong. God created a garden, and he said to Adam and Eve, this is where you belong. This is a place. You're here. This is a place of belonging. You don't have to earn your belonging. You don't have to work for your belonging. This is the garden that belongs to you. You're inhabiting the place of your belonging. It seemed to me that Baumeister and Leary, unbeknownst to them, had actually identified the core motivator of human beings because actually it was the one motivator that God had created in all of us to really belong. And yet the heart of that story of belonging was also a story of insecurity and unbelonging. That shame is the greatest enemy to our belonging because despite being in the garden, we don't believe that we should be there. Shame is the greatest enemy of your belonging and leadership because whilst you belong in your leadership within your organizations and churches, shame will say, yeah, you're here, but you don't really belong. You've got to fake it to make it. You've got to look the part, but you'll never really be the part. The horrible thing about shame is it steals our belonging. It robs us of what's already ours. And as you know, Adam and Eve were in the garden. They suddenly realized they were bound by shame. They were naked, it says, yet they were without shame. And then they meet the snake and they take the apple and suddenly... It says that they became aware of their nakedness and they felt ashamed. The garden that was their place of belonging had suddenly become the place of their hiding. The first thing that they did was go and sew cloths for themselves out of leaves and cover themselves in skins to hide themselves because shame had caused a barrier within them to separate them from the good things of God. You know, we all sew our own proverbial skins together and our own leaves together to cover our hearts when we say, you know what, I'm in the garden, but I just don't really belong here. It's interesting in leadership, I see this amazing story of Moses uh, in Exodus. And uh, he's the classic example of the shame-bound leader. You know, Moses, you could say, had a pretty difficult childhood. If you were Moses' youth worker in Egypt, in sort of 1400 BC, and you were, you were hanging around the, the kind of Pharaoh's courts, and Moses came to see you. You know, it'd be a difficult story, wouldn't it? Yes, yeah, your mum, she put you in a basket, and she pushed you out on a river filled with crocodiles. Um, that was difficult, but just let me be clear, her intentions were good, even though the sort of practical outworking was maybe a little bit dubious. Um, Yes, and you were then adopted by um, an Egyptian woman, and yes, she was the uh, daughter of the Pharaoh, who's actually killing all of your siblings. That might be a bit confusing, but again, you know, she was a kind woman, even if her father-in-law wasn't particularly kind. Yes, that's right, yes, they did kill all, yes, all of, most of your nation, yes. And, um, oh, and then your mum appeared, but she said she wasn't really your mum anymore. That must have been quite confusing, too. She said she was actually the, the handmaiden who was going to uh, sort of support the princess. So it was quite strange. But actually, again, her intentions were quite good, even though it was a bit weird, her saying that she wasn't actually your mum anymore. I understand that you feel abandoned, um, but at least you weren't eaten by crocodiles. Um, 
you know, it's going to be a bit of interesting youth work going on there. But then, uh, you know, then Moses grows up in, the, in Pharaoh's courts believing, you know, is he Hebrew or is he, actually, um, is, he, is he actually being really Hebrew? And then his anger, which is a big part of his shame basement about not really being belonging in the courts of, of Pharaoh, suddenly busts out in a major way and he loses control and he kills a guy. And it's all pretty out of control. But what do you do when you've killed a guy? When your shame basement is blown open? Because actually the reality was that Moses killed a slave. Slave drivers were slaves. But Moses was a prince of Egypt. And actually, you know what? You could go out and shoot any slave you liked. Obviously, you didn't have guns, but you know, you did whatever you wanted. In uh, the period, you should kill whoever you like. Prince of Egypt. Kill for sport. You know, hey, you killed a slave. Well done, my son. High five. You see, it wasn't actually Pharaoh who put Moses into exile. It was Moses who put Moses into exile. Moses runs away and places himself into exile because his shame basement has been blown open. And here we find Moses, after spending 40 years in the desert in exile, in front of a burning bush where the Lord is meeting with him. And in, you find this story in, in Exodus chapter 4. Um, sorry, in... I'm going to read from Exodus chapter 4. But in Exodus chapter 3, it says that Moses was tending the flock of, Lef- of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And there the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, and yet it did not burn up. Moses is here in front of the Lord, and... He's having a crisis of belonging. You know, rather than address the issues, he's here in exile. And, um, and then the Lord calls him to do this incredible work. Moses is called back. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into the good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? The first question that Moses asks is not the question of fear. It's the question of qualification. Who am I? Who am I to go? Who am I to go? Well, hold on a minute. If I was going to go and see Pharaoh, who I'd run away from, whose slave driver I'd killed, surely I'd be worried about losing my head. It wouldn't be the qualification of my life which would determine whether I went or not. It would be saying, God, you know, if I go, I'm clearly going to get executed. That would be my bit. I'll stay where I am, thanks very much. But Moses' question is a question around identity. He feels fraudulent. And then he says in Exodus 4, chapter 1, what if they don't believe me? You know, what, what, what if they don't believe who I am? You know, 
What if they don't believe that I've been sent by you? God says, What's in your hand? What's in your hand? It's funny, isn't it? Strange question. What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And then the Lord said, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it. And then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned back to a staff in his hand. It's funny, isn't it? The staff was the thing that Moses had used as a sign of his own strength. He'd been defending himself. And uh, the Lord said, throw it onto the ground, and it became a snake. Now, the sign for shame in the garden was the snake. I mean, there was a real snake, right? But the snake was a snake of shame. We're going we're gonna to have some ministry in a moment, so, so don't worry. There's not something technical that's gone and gone. He's not come to wrestle me off the stage. So he ran from it. Because the way we deal with shame is this. The first response we have to shame is we want to run away from it. I want to run away. I want to place myself in exile. I want to get away from this thing. You might want to sit down. I've got a few more minutes. Do you want to sit there? I'll call you up. Just stay there. We need you. We need you. The first thing you do with shame is you run away from shame. But if you can't run away, you just hide from it while staying where you are. Stay. Don't go too far. But then the Lord said, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. Now, if you're not watching, you'll miss this. I, I'm, I know Bear Grylls a bit. He knows Bear Grylls. likes his stuff on TV. It's great. Bear Grylls will tell you. Two ways to deal with a snake. The first thing you do is run away. That's the best thing you can do. But if you can't run away, then take control of the snake by the head. You know, if you use a stick with a little fork in it, grab it by the head and control it by the head. And if you have to pick it up, always pick it up by the head, squeeze your thumb into the back just behind its head, and you'll control its bite so it cannot bite you. How should you not pick up a snake? The one way you should never, ever pick up a snake is by the tail. Guaranteed. It gives it maximum opportunity to whip its head around and bite you. Plus, generally, animals don't like being picked up by the tail. <clears throat> but God has said to a shepherd of some 40 years of dealing with snakes in the desert to do the very thing that he should never, ever, ever do. 40 years. You know, the greatest enemy of you in the desert in the period was not lions, was not bears. Your daily experience was going to be with snakes. Do the very thing that you must not do. Pick up the snake by a tail. And so he picked it up and it turned back into a staff in his hands. Now, I believe that this really happened, so don't misunderstand me when I'm using it metaphorically. But in terms of shame, in sh with shame in our lives, we want to run from it. But the Lord's saying, not control it anymore, because that's what we've done really well. I'm like, hey, look at me, super youth worker, totally amazing. Don't you know I'm fantastic? But I'm just not going to tell you what's going on in my back world. That's the control bit. But actually, pick up the snake by the tail. Make yourself vulnerable to its bite. Because when you do, rather than being the thing that you need to run from, control, or hide from, it's going to be the very thing that gives you authority to minister in Egypt. You're no longer needing to exile yourself because your authority comes from this place. Interestingly, as soon as Moses has his first encounter with Pharaoh, 
It's an encounter in which it's actually Aaron's stuff which has turned into a snake of that. He calls Aaron to throw down his stuff. He mentors him to reveal his shame and not to be afraid of the magicians who create their own snakes, almost to try and humiliate Moses away. But, but Aaron's snake eats the magician's snakes and shows that the authority of the Lord is with them. Imagine your leadership no longer running from shame, no longer trying to create the perfect persona where you're omnicompetent, but actually where your authority comes from this place, where actually this is a staff to you to say, you know what, I'm a sinner saved by God's grace. There's nothing you can say against me which is going to make me exile myself. There's no challenge you can make to me that's going to make me diminish myself. There's nothing you can throw at me that's going to make me run away from you right now because I know I'm a sinner and I'm saved by God's grace. And now I've been made whole. And this is the staff of the king. And I'm carrying it and I'm coming to your land to transform your young people. This is where the power comes from. Brede Brown says that shame, blame, disrespect, and the withholding of affection damage the roots from which love can grow. And friends, we are in the business of making love grow. We're in the business of making Christ known. And if we have fully received the love of Christ in our shame basement, then we are going to be powerful. I always say to people, you know, we are most powerful, we are most dangerous when we are loved. Yet shame would say we are not loved. But today you're going to pick up the snake by the tail and say, here I am, Lord. I'm for you. I'm for Egypt. I'm for young people. Nothing's going to hold me back. Nothing's going to diminish me down. Nothing's going to shake me out. I'm going to live freely. Sometimes clever youth workers say things like, whoa, what's the opposite of shame though, Will? Isn't it being shameless? Like, surely that's a bad thing. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The Bible says that they live by their shamelessness or they were given over to shamelessness. Being shameless is not actually what we're called to be. The opposite of shame is not shamelessness, it's humility. From humus, which means ground. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were not shameless, they were humble. And the reason they were humble was demonstrated in three different ways in the Garden. Firstly, they live within boundaries. You can eat of any tree in the garden apart from this one tree. They experienced healthy boundaries. They were alone. They were the only part of creation which were uniquely alone. And yet they were unique and alone, yet they were without shame. They recognized their own vulnerability. And thirdly, they were naked. They were ultimately vulnerable and were without shame. That's humility. Humility is having healthy boundaries, recognizing that you haven't got the whole package, that you need others to help you. Humility is recognizing that you're totally unique, and that's totally okay. You don't need to put Brad Pitt on your Facebook profile or Justin Bieber, I'm getting a bit old these days, or whoever's the new cool person, because you just are you, right? And that's totally fine with God and everybody else. And thirdly, you can be totally vulnerable. That's not splurge, splurge, look at me, I'm making all the same mistakes as you. That's, um, this is who I am. I know who I'm and that's totally cool, and be without shame. The Garden of Eden represents three levels of humility, which you're all called to, because actually we're a new creation placed into a new garden, and therefore your shamelessness is not shameless, you're actually called to a humility, which is an authority from God. This is a new place for you to live. Three goals that you might firstly accept your limitations without shame, accepting the provision of God, the care of others with humility and thankfulness. Secondly, that you might welcome your aloneness without shame, recognizing your uniqueness whilst living in communion with God and others. And thirdly, that you might be uncovered without shame, 
living a life of authenticity and vulnerability as one beloved of God. This is all that the enemy said you couldn't do. But this is all that Christ came to do. Accept my limitations, welcome my uniqueness, lead out of my vulnerability, and be reliant on God's unconditional grace. This is the journey away from shame. Shame drives mistrust into the promises of God. And today is all about reclaiming those promises for yourself. You're sitting there going, ah, my head is a mess, my head is a mess. Who is this guy? Get him off, get him off, get him off. This is about saying, you know what? There's a new trust for you. God is doing a new thing in you. He's releasing you to a new place of trust. The way we can find ourselves living is living like this. Front stage, backstage. Everyone's done it. Here I am. Ta-da! God doesn't want you to live your front stage out there and your backstage back there. He wants you to be an integrated person. Shame-bound leaders look present, they appear transparent, and they sound connected. But in reality, they aren't emotionally present, and they're a closed book, and they feel highly disconnected. So the way we live is like this. Everyone has got this front stage and then this shadow behind them. And behind all this is a psychology called the sociometer, which is the perception that we have that other people are already judging us. And you will have all experienced this. It's this kind of a funny look. You know, a little comment, and it's like, oh, oh, oh no, oh my goodness, I'm feeling judged right now. That's because people can see my shame. I got a lot of acceptability and way. The sociometer is distorted by shame to falsely present our unacceptability and impending rejection. Humans are generally intolerable of pain. We try and we do anything we can to get away from pain. But the perception that we might be humiliated is enough to send us running into exile. And we've got to pray to God, God, would you redeem my sociometer this, this, uh, this morning? I want, to be, I want to be resilient. You know, when young people say, oh, you're such a tool, you know, do you receive that into your spirit or just go, yeah, that's your business? Or do you secretly go, oh, that's probably right. Uh, I had a tough day, everyone. I'm feeling terrible about myself. If a Christian leader needs to be resilient, it's a Christian youth leader. Where's your resilience come from? Does it come from having a thick skin? No, it comes from having a redeemed heart. It comes from having dealt with this basement because this basement will be activated time and time again by every quip and quill, by every little slight, every little comment, every little diminishment, and you'll feel it in your heart. It doesn't matter how thick your skin. God's called you to be resilient in here to go, yeah, let's talk about that. I'm not feeling anything right now other than we need to help you. We need to help you. I'm not activated by you because I'm plugged in here. I'm plugged into the security of Christ. If we don't deal with this, uh, sh- this shadow within us, we develop what I call a shadow mission. This is um, a young Anakin Skywalker. He casts a, a pretty ominous shadow. Many of us can be working pretty hard you know, to do what we think is the mission of God. I'm here to reach young people with the, with the gospel. But actually, secretly, we're running a shadow mission. You know, I can preach two sorts. I could preach Christ crucified, and I could really go for it, right? I could preach Christ crucified as my mission, because that's what God's called me to. But I could preach exactly the same sermon, with exactly the same comment, in exactly the same way, and I could be fulfilling my shadow mission. That's Will van der Hart is funny. Same, same talk, but the purpose of my talk is completely different. Over here, I'm seeking to fulfill my 
true mission, the mission that God's given to me, but over here I'm seeking to fulfill my shadow mission because I feel insecure. Oh, go on, laugh. Oh, look connected. Stop looking at your phone. You're making me think that I'm boring. Like, don't walk away just because you need the toilet. Be desperate and stay where you are so, so I can fulfill the fact that you're interested in what I'm saying because that's what I need you to do right now because it's for me. Because I'm so undone. It's hard, isn't it? You're probably a bit embarrassed for my sake. But I, I, I want to I out the shadow mission. I out the shadow mission all the time. It, it's, what, it's a racket. It's a ruse. It's like, why am I doing this? Am I doing this because this is the mission that God's called me to? Or am I so insecure? Is my shame basement so full that I'm fulfilling my shadow mission? And you've all got to identify what your shadow mission is. It's the thing that you would be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing for God. You know what Moses' shadow mission was? Shepherding sheep. You know what Moses' true mission was? Shepherding sheep. The fact is our shadow mission is only ever five degrees away from our true mission. Preaching Christ crucified and preaching Will van der Hart is funny. It's only five degrees away. Same sermon, same talk, possibly the same impact. It's the purpose that matters. You see, Moses was shepherding sheep when he was supposed to be shepherding the sheep of Israel. He needed to take five degrees of recalibration to actually fulfill the mission that God's called him to. Instead, he was fulfilling his shadow mission, which was staying safe in the desert. What's unhinging you from the mission of God? Because you know what? When your true mission and your true self are co-joined, you are truly powerful for the kingdom of God. When you really show up and do the thing that God's really called you to, that's when we're going to see the kingdom come in real power. Turn up to do the thing that God has called you to do. Speakers who own their shame become leaders because they're the ones who can acknowledge that his power is made perfect in weakness. This is what it really looks like. It's no longer your power, it's the power of God at work in you. So as we come into land, we're going to just spend a couple of minutes in ministry and then we're going to have some time for Q&A. But I want to remind you that shame cannot survive being spoken about. In order to bust the door open, you've got to start talking about how this feels, but not with young people. You've got to start talking with adults, with your discipleship teams, with your peers. And you've got to go, this is the place that we do the work, so out there we can really transform young people's lives from a place of real security. We're going to model out there, and we're going to deal in here. We're going to be real out there, and we're going to be real in here, but the sort of reality in this room is going to look different to the sort of reality in that room. You know, in Numbers 21.9, the Israelites have been led by the shepherd, Moses, into the desert, and they started taking their eyes off the Lord. And they were bitten by snakes. They started saying things like, oh, we've got to get back again. We're going to go back to Egypt because they had better bread, better figs. Shame came over them. Are we always going to be in the desert like this? We're going to be this nomadic group. But God called Moses he says, to, to make a snake. He says, so Moses made a bronze snake and he put it on a pole. And when anyone was bitten by the snake, they looked up at the bronze snake and they lived. You know the reason that they lived? Was that they turned their eyes against the heavens and they saw the Lord. 
Their faces were bound by shame. They were looking down, but when they looked up, they saw the Lord and they were released. And then it says in John 3, 14, as Moses lifted up the snake on the pole in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. You see, Jesus Christ was lifted up. He became our shame. He became the snake on the pole. He became the snake so that we might be healed from the snake. Jesus became our shame. And he was lifted up on the pole so that we might be set free. Derek Prince summarized the 10 exchanges that resulted when Jesus died on the cross as he shed his blood for our sins. He says, Jesus was punished for the sins that we've committed that we might be forgiven. Jesus was wounded for the sins that we've committed that we might be healed. Jesus was made sin with our sinfulness that we might be made righteous with his righteousness. Jesus died our death that we might share his life. Jesus was made a curse that we might receive the blessing. Jesus endured our spiritual poverty that we might share his abundance. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus endured our rejection that we might have his acceptance with the Father. Jesus was cut off by death that we might be joined to God eternally. Jesus bore our shame that we might share his glory. Jesus the redeemer of our shame. He became our shame that we might share his glory. Why don't we stand where we are just for a moment. Maybe you just want to open your hands. Just as a sign of your openness to God right now. We just want to do this piece of work where we are and you want to just be in your team right now because this is a team experience as much as it is an individual experience. Maybe you want to hold out your hands so you could just brush the jumper of the person next to you in an appropriate way or put a hand on a shoulder or... Just know you're connected together. Just to say, God, oh, I belong. I belong here, Lord. I belong. You belong. The Lord is saying today, this morning, you belong. Just sense the presence of God. Just Everyone just close your eyes so you're just not embarrassed. I just want you to speak out, just in tongues or in your own language. Just do, you belong. Just say, I belong. God, I belong. I belong. Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, you are here Lord. Come Lord, that you belong, that you belong. You belong here. Come Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is here. He's unifying you. He's releasing you to the belonging you've been called to. Come Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. We're going to take authority in the spiritual realms because we want the snake to be banished because Christ became the snake so we could share in His glory, not that we could share in the shame. So we say Jesus right now to any person here who has a basement filled with shame for whom the snake is having a field day, we just say be gone in the name of Jesus to that, to that snake, to that accusation, to that curse. Speak against that in the name of Jesus right now. We set you free. We set you free in Jesus' name. Receive power. We receive power when we call on his name. And so we just pray now for the power of God to be manifest here amongst us. The power of God to lead as Christ has led to be the leaders in the mission 
that God has called us to with authenticity as children of God. Come now, we're going to receive power when we call His name. So now I just want you to ask for power. Just ask for power in your groups. Ask for power for the person next to you. Release your power, Lord. Release your power. Release your power. Release your power, Lord. The power of God is here. You see the, I see the, the power and the presence of God. He's filling people up. Receive power when you call on His name. Now we're going we're gonna to just impart power now to the in every group, there's going to be one person who just knows, oh my goodness, this is for me, okay? Now, this is going to take huge courage from you. But if you feel like this message, I just need this message, I want you just to acknowledge that to the people around you. And I want the people around you just to gather around you appropriately, just to lay hands on you, and they're going to just impart power to you in the name of Jesus. So if you could just say, this message is for me, okay? You might want to do it. Just, if you could see, if you'd all be sensitive to that person who says, this message is for me. I want you to gather around. There might be two people. There's people here raising their hands. Let's not be shy because the power of the Lord is here to transform lives this morning. So let's not be shy. Who is the person for whom this message, this message is for me? This person is already, they're blowing their shame basin open by acknowledging this is true, right? They're saying, this message is for me. Now I want you to impart power in the name of Jesus, right? So let's lay hands on that person right now. And we, as a team, we're going to bless them up. So we impart power now in the name of Jesus to this person. This message is for me. Now start praying now with expectancy and with authority in the name of Jesus. Expect power now. Expect power. Pray with authority. The Lord's doing it. I can see the Lord is doing it. Just keep pressing in. Keep claiming it for Jesus right now. The Lord is doing it. He's moving in power to just take authority in Jesus' name. Release your power. And everyone say to that person, you belong. It's the message of the kingdom. You belong. You're a child of God. You belong. Just keep speaking belonging over them right now in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, you belong. guys the Lord is here okay we're going to we're just going to receive a blessing now so I want you just again to always just to bless one another maybe just in the spiritual realm you're saying I love this team I love this team I love this team I love this team, Lord. I love this team. I love these people. We belong. We are your children. We just want to gather again as a team. We just want to affirm one another in the Lord. We belong together. We are a team. We belong. Come, Holy Spirit. 
the Lord is doing an amazing thing amongst you. And relationships right now are being restored. I just see that it's like in the spiritual realm, people who've fallen out are falling in. Come Holy Spirit, bless what you're doing. an Anglican blessing over you which is probably a crazy thing to do but the blessing of God Almighty the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit rest upon you and your teams and all whom you love and know that you belong now and forever the children of God Amen Amen Let's take our seats again Great Do you want to clap the Lord? I think he's been doing a good thing. Okay. I'm going to I'm going to escape from here. I'm just going to get that out of the way. Ah, let's take that off. Okay. There's so much more I just think God's going to do for you guys over the course of this weekend. And um I'm so pumped to see you gathering in teams, and I just think, over lunch, I would love you just to continue the conversation. Can I just remind you of a couple of very important things? The first one is this. God does an incredible work in the moment, but he also does an incredible work over a long period of time. And we have to be ready for two tracks of recovery. The first one is in the moment, and the second one is in the long term. And so I just want to encourage you not to just receive that blessing and be like, I'm done. But to be like, I've received that blessing and I'm done, but I'm also not yet done. Because Paul says that we're on this journey that's the now and the not yet, the kingdom of God, and we have to claim things in the spiritual realm and we have to work them out in the practical realm. So I want you to journal what you're experiencing. I want you to keep communing around your experience together. And I want to say to you, if you feel that you're particularly distressed by anything that you've heard today, I want you to get some further help. And that's totally, totally good and fine. And that might be some counseling support. That might be having a chat with one of your senior leaders and saying, look, I feel like there's stuff I need to deal with. But I want you not to seal up the basement again and go, I'm not going to deal with that. I want you just to go, okay, we're all on a journey. And I want to say to you, I'm not up here as someone who's like, yeah, I'm so free. I am someone who's so free, but so needs to keep on holding on to my freedom and choosing this thing choosing to belong, okay? So it's the both and. We've got some time now for some questions. I know it might feel funny rolling in some questions after that, but I want you to press into more ministry this afternoon, this evening. That's going to happen in a big way. This is just a warm-up for everything that God's going to do amongst you. So are there any questions I would love to respond to in the next 15 minutes before you guys have lunch? We've got a microphone to rove around. You can ask about anything related to mental emotional health or anything related to this topic. And the quicker the better. Let's go. There's one right here. I'll try and answer super quickly. Um, how do we maintain a healthy balance between being there for young people but not putting pressure on our own lives or families or routines? Basically, wh when do we reply to texts? So, okay, really good. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. If, like, a large part of dealing with a shame basement means that you aren't activated by the need to be the superhero helper. And poor boundaries are nearly 
unmaintained, if you like, as a result of feeling like we have to be there, not because young people need us to be there, but because we need to be there. So we become superhero carers who anytime the phone goes, we're present. If we do not model healthy boundaries with social media, then we are not helping young people with social media. And I would always say, look, to young people I'm working with, or I tend, tend to work with adults, look, I'm available between these times. It is a life lesson to know that the shop opens at 9 o'clock and the shop closes at 6 o'clock, and if the shop is closed, the shop is closed. Um, you choose to get the milk at a time that the shop is open. And there is very rarely anything th that needs uh, social media contact or text contact unless, you know, that is an emergency. I would always say, if there is an emergency, you can always call me. Social media and texting are so easy to do, particularly for young people, they don't necessarily recognize the gravitas of what they're doing. So I always say, look, I've got an emergency, you know, call me in an emergency, but I'm available to you during these times, unless it's an emergency. And I often think it's healthy working teams about who's on call. I work in a team, and someone's on call, and they're on call a week at a time, and when they're not on call, they're not on call, and then the call goes to somebody else. But do not mess up if you like, your interpersonal relationships and your family relationships because of that bit that says, I've got, to be, I've got to be there. And leaders who are unhealthy always say, I have to be there. So what they're saying is, I'm more important than I really am. Humility says, I'm not as important as the team I'm part of. Um, yeah, great, let's go. That's short, let's try and keep it short and sweet. I can't believe that's the only question in a room of 500 people. There's one over here, let's go. So, uh, well, obviously, a huge part of moving out of shame is knowing new identity. Just what, what are some of the things that you found most helpful, the practical things in helping young people know who they are in Christ, their new identity? How do you actually land yeah, that in so, their lives? I mean, new identity is new in that it's redeemed. And I always think that the exile or the false self is not, a, it's not the new Christian identity, it's just new identity. So I don't think about, like, you know, the Born series. A new identity in Born is like one of many passports. And Jason can become any different character at any particular time. But the difference is, he's not those characters. He's just Jason Bourne. And when we do a Jason Bourne style of identity thing with young people, we're often saying, you're a new creation in Christ. What the young person hears is, oh, I'm a new person. Now, they're brilliant at recreating themselves. They do it every week. Um, what we need to teach them is actually a new creation. It's not a new identity, as in a new passport. It's a transformed heart. And so I think we need to connect young people to their story and work with their own narrative rather than actually begin with a, right, this is what your life should look like. I'm more interested in saying, where has your life come from? Let's find the strands of how your life has actually developed and what God's redeeming from the rubble. Strikes me God is in the business of redemption and he's buying stuff back. And very often with young people, I think the key thing is saying, well, what part of that story is valuable to you? And, and let's talk about your story. So I think working in the narrative is more important than actually telling young people how to behave. I know you guys don't do that anyway, but you know what I mean. We can say, this is what a Christian looks like. That's a passport identity. This is what a Christian is becoming. That's a transformational identity. And so I think redeeming their story is really important. And I would encourage you all to go after testimony in a major way. It's biblical and it transforms lives. And it also deals with the shame basement, because when young people share their testimony, they're beginning to tell people their story, but it's a redeemed story, and that is a blessed story. And testimony is a forgotten gift to the church. 
So we should be encouraging testimony and encouraging story and not be uncomfortable in ourselves about the stories that young people are sharing. Be like, yeah, that's totally fine. You can share your story. Let's, let's hear that. So that's what I would encourage, renewing it from the grassroots up. Great, let's go again. Uh, yes, at the back. Um, thanks. Hello. Hello. Oh, hello. Um, I, I just had a question because you, you mentioned earlier about, you know, if about authenticity. So if somebody in the youth comes up to you um, and they say, oh, how are you doing? And actually you're really struggling and you're going through a hard time and you don't want to be like, oh, I'm, we're all in a bad place, that's fine. You yeah. know, how would you actually yeah. handle that if you're so, yourself so, going so, through? So these, these words are slightly muddly. In terms of people think being authentic is telling everyone what they are in the moment. But I, I don't think that's true at all. Being authentic is actually living your backstage front stage. Being inauthentic is tricking other people into believing that you're somebody you're not. But being authentic is actually being who you actually are. But that does not mean you lose sight of professional identity. You know, imagine you go back to the doctors. He's like, oh, massive curry last night. Oh, excuse me. Oh, I feel a bit like, oh, gassy. You'd be like, what? Like, you're a doctor, right? Just show me your doctor killed there kind of thing and you know, wear your coat and look professional. So that's not... You know, that, that's not authenticity that he's not told you that he's not feeling great when you've asked him how he is and he had a massive curry last night. Authenticity is that he's really himself. He really is a doctor and he's really doing his thing. As a youth worker, when a young person says, how are you doing? You have to decide whether that's an appropriate conversation to say more than what is customary and polite. I, I'm a vicar. When everyone at the door says to me, you know, Hello, vicar, how are you? I'm like, oh, well, you know, let me tell you all about you know, what's going on in my life right now. I normally say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay, thanks very much. Don't say, oh, it's an amazing day, praise God, I feel fabulous, if you don't feel fabulous. But equally, don't give them the whole shebang, because actually they're not there. You're not, they're not there for you, you're there for them. And, and you've got to be thinking about what the difference is between a false self and actually a professional self. Youth workers often struggle with that boundary because they think good youth work is like, just be yourself, mate, you know, look uber trend. Apart from when you get old like me and then you try to look uber trend and then it goes weird. Uh, so then we're all like on this weird battle. So just, it's like be yourself, but be the professional version of yourself. That's not inauthentic, that's just professional. We want a professional youth work, but we want one that's built out of honesty, not dishonesty. And if someone says to me, how are you really? That means they're saying, can you tell me a bit more about how you really are? And I think there's an opportunity there for you to say, well, actually, there's a few things in my life that I'm finding difficult at the moment. We all find things difficult. What are you finding difficult? So there's ways of demonstrating professional authenticity without being fraudulent. It would be a nightmare if you guys got those boundaries wrong, then you start living a codependency. Remember, we're looking not for independence, like the Beyonce put a ring on it but don't really have a relationship with it, or, or codependency, that's like we totally need each other for everything and we're completely like sucking the life out of each other. We are in the middle here, we are interdependent people who have both identity singularity and also need for co-relationship. So interdependence is what we're looking for, not codependency and not independence. That's what the gospel is, we're interdependent people, we are the church. Great, another one. Let's go a uh, couple more. We've got a couple more, and then you're starving hungry and probably exhausted, so you're going to have a, a break for some great lunch. Um, yes, at the back. 
Yeah, um, Moses really struggled with how um, God called him to do what he's supposed to do. Um, practically, how do you um, come out of the cycle of um, you refusing to do what God has called you to do and just go and do it? How did you... I think that's a really good question. How do you actually fulfill your true mission versus your false mission? The best thing you can do is actually work out what your false mission is and stop doing that, and then you'll nearly always default in what you're really supposed to be doing. The thing is, we spend so long fulfilling our false mission that actually we very rarely actually tick over onto the thing that God's really called us to do. So think about what your false mission might be. Your false mission could be being the person that everyone needs. Your false mission might be... Um, being like super funny, or your false mission might be getting super like promotion, or your false mission might be, you know, being super popular, whatever your false mission is. When you stop trying to fulfill your, 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 your shadow mission your, for, for the fulfillment of your false self, you tick into what you're really called to be and what you're really called to do. When we don't do the thing that serves ourselves, we do the thing that serves God. And that is the thing that God's called us to. The danger about the Moses story is it it's an unbelievable story that took 40 years, and yet it's condensed into just a few chapters of Exodus. And we can think, oh, I must be called to that kind of a story. Lots of Moses' stories really boring. They just didn't write that stuff down. Lots of the things we're called to is just quite boring. Doesn't mean it's not valuable, but we're just called to it. So don't mistake the drama for the thing that God's really called you to. Just go in for the actual God Every day, I'm going to just choose to serve you, and I'm not going to choose to tick into this. God's going to go, hey, that's great. You're not wasting your time doing that. Now you're doing this. Let's do business together. You're right, on the right, you're right at the right place at the right time. I, I do a lot of marriage work. People will say to me, like, what's the secret of a really happy marriage? I go, just wake up every day, love that person, just for the day. They're like, what? Let's love them for the day? Yeah, just wake up every morning. Roll over, look at that person and go, I'm going to love the socks off that person today. Do that every day. Happy marriage, the whole lifetime, guaranteed. That's it, secret of happy marriage. Guaranteed, absolutely guarantee it. You roll over every day, you just love the socks off the person next to you, you're totally fine. Christian ministry, Christian calling, same principle. Wake up every day, open the scriptures. God, I'm going to love your socks off today. That's it. Do that every day for a lifetime, guarantee you're going to serve God for the rest of your life. Simple as that. Don't worry about anything else. Open your Bibles. Love the socks off God. Guarantee all the stuff you do, all part of the calling of the Lord, going to have an amazing impact. So you've got to keep it simple. But what you've got to do is not open your Bible, work out what your, what your shadow mission is, go and do that instead, and then never do the thing that God's actually calling you to do. That's the secret. Okay, one last one. Oh, okay, we're done, we're done. I'm not going to shy away from that. You always get the enthusiastic clap who's thinking, yeah, it's lunchtime. Lunch, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, love it. Lunch, lunch is served, brilliant, fantastic, thanks for that. Um, so good, thank you for that. I hope it's a good one. Um, guys, I cannot say what a privilege it's been to be here with you all and, you know, fabulous atmosphere in the room. I want to thank you again for all the amazing stuff you're doing. And uh, if we can be of any further help, we've got thousands of resources for you on the MindlessSoulFoundation.org website and um, all the social stuff. If you've got young people with mental health problems, then we are a resource for you. It's not just me. 
Rob is a consultant psychiatrist. Kate is a clinical psychologist. We have a whole team of experts all around the country. We want to support you guys, so do plug in and uh, get the help you need. Thank you so much. Let's give him a round of applause.